I'm Catherine Nichols, back with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. Today's book is André Breton's Surrealist Manifesto, or his first Surrealist Manifesto from 1924. There are some subsequent ones. Um, This is a piece of automatic writing in defense of surrealism as an artistic movement and a way of life. The argument is essentially that adult life, um, as it was lived around him, is horrible. No one likes it, and the only way to recapture the pleasure of living is to release an adult's obsession with the things they own and to dream, take drugs, fall in love, live in a house with your friends, or pretend you do, and commit crimes, and essentially to live as a surrealist. Um, As we talk, we'll try to be at least as clear as he is about what that means. So in the spirit of the manifesto, I did not plan ahead what question I was going to ask you to kick off the episode. Um, So just off the top of my head, what did you think of this? Oh, wait, that's the question I always ask. Man, it is with automatic writing. Very surreal question. Um, <laughs> wow, what did I think of it? I I don't know. I have so many thoughts about it, and partly it's you know when you're a writer, there's this stuff is just kind of in the atmosphere a lot, um, and I was really surprised by how many of the kind of vague, mushy ideas that I deal with from other writers and, and even from myself, from my own expectations of writing can be traced to this manifesto. Um, I had the same thought. I, I was amazed by how much it still seems to be not just in the air, but the air. Yes. This whole, like all of this, so much stuff, so much stuff in it. And I mean, and some of it is obviously not original to Breton, but still, like this thing that like that artistic capacity is related to madness and childhood and anarchy and and so on, and that the 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 terrible idea that that we have only just rid ourselves of that editing is bad. <laughs> I, I kind of want to talk about it in a bigger way first because I wanted to. Like there were a few things that he said that didn't feel like they were straight out of a writing guide from the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of those things is toward the beginning. Um, it, he really hates Dostoevsky, which I thought was, you know, something that you don't hear a lot often these days. Um, and he hates realism in general and novels because he thinks that the objects in your life that you own and encounter are entirely a matter of chance. And so if you describe a character by describing what objects he owns or encounters, you're describing only the obsessions of uh, people who, who want to quantify and determine how valuable something is by how much it costs or how much money somebody earns as their entire value like it's that kind of thinking that um, which he describes as you can remember how many women you've had sex with, but not the feeling of love. So he he's like he dislikes realism that describes objects in a room, 
but loves dreams because those are objects that are only meaning. Right? Yeah. Did you get the same thing from it that I did? Because it's a little difficult to read and get meaning from. It is. He does not edit. <laughs> you can tell. Yes. He was not concerned to be understood that much. I think that a lot of this, I mean, I think it's interesting because in, in a lot of ways, you know, we're, we're dealing with a lot of ideas that are familiar and remain to some degree current today, but he's much more rigorous about pursuing them to their logical conclusion. So he's not only like against the idea of possessions and the important of the importance of the physical world. He's ultimately, by the end of it, sort of advocating that everyone should behave as if the physical world doesn't exist. Like not only write as if it doesn't exist, but behave as if it doesn't exist. And, you know, and behave as if we're immortal and can't be harmed by crimes that we commit against each other in the name of surrealism. So, so I mean, that's yeah. interesting, at least. Yeah. Yeah, I, that, that's, it's kind of why I wanted to, um, to, to talk about what I saw as the, the framing device, which is which things does he like and which things does he not like? Because then there are definitely ways that these ideas are still abundantly with us. But they're also, they're, they're quite odd when they're presented in this form. And not just because, as you say, like the logical conclusion that he reaches is it's so extreme that it's even beyond the thing that we've talked about on this podcast before of kind of uh, romanticizing mental illness as a way of talking about, I guess, uh, discontent. It seemed to me well beyond that, what he was actually saying. And obviously the you know idea of like childhood being special and magical is something that has been around in many forms in the 19th century and all that. I thought that it was interesting that he sort of pushed beyond his dislike or so his, he likes childhood. He dislikes the changes that come upon you as you become an adult in your thinking, but he especially dislikes the way adults speak to children. Like that's something that he was just extra upset about as Mm -hmm. he thinks that like all of religion is basically something that has taken on this puerility, right? Did you get that same impression from that part? Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm finding that I'm. I remember the parts of the manifesto that you don't remember so far. But wait, what are the parts? I actually that, don't remember wait, the bit. Wait, so we just remember different parts? Like you probably remember the whole thing, but I only remember like seventy percent of it. No, I, I just the parts <laughs> definitely don't remember the whole thing. <laughs> Um, I, no, I, remember, I have a note about um, how he talks about Nijinsky. I'm into that. Um, oh, yeah, I actually have a note that's just like Nijinsky exclamation point. <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, friend of the podcast, Nijinsky. Uh, so, yeah, you first um, suggested that we read this while we were reading the what it feels like to be a bat. And I thought it really had quite a lot of overlap in some of its thoughts about how... Um, like there are no objective facts about subjective experience, which um, in the manifesto it comes across as always, you're always correct about yourself, your mental states. Yeah. He's, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting. Like he, he's very bold about not caring about who's going to do the work, for instance. Um, 
or whether we have to know if it's Thursday in, you know, like that sort of thing doesn't, doesn't concern him. Um, and I, I suppose that there's some, there's some implication actually, like I've given him credit for being rigorous about the way that he thinks about these things, but in a sense, he just doesn't deal with the possibility that it is Thursday. And if you don't go to work, you, your electricity will be turned off and, and so on. Um, it feels important to mention that it's actually Wednesday while we're taping this. Ah, that's true. Yeah. And it'll be Tuesday when this comes out, just so no one's confused. I never know whether it's Thursday. And unfortunately, you know, I'm exactly the person that he expects his reader to be. Yeah. I uh, Did you get the, the part where he's talking about how to write? Um, and his, his scheme for how to write is that you become very... Co- comfortable and then send for your have your writing things brought to you (laughs) there's definitely a division between the person who is comfortable and the person who brings the writing things I think he really would be okay with the world just falling apart with nobody doing any of the work well he does like one thing that we've got to say because I'm sure that you thought this too like he he is not in his scheme of this, um, it is not a woman who's doing the writing. <laughs> so, so it's we definitely that, not a woman. Yeah, like the the gender stuff is absolutely insane. So, it, yeah, it's like he clearly, the person bringing the the writing materials is not just a woman, but a sexually attractive woman who's having sex with him because he's a good surrealist. <laughs> On the terms of this manifesto. It, there is that whole part about um, him and all his male friends having all of the attractive women that they want uh, whenever they want. Um, and they all live in a house together. Yeah. There's the cat. He's like, who's to say this isn't true? Yeah. It yeah. It's true. wonderful. Like he lists all of these, these friends of his who, who are like wonderful. I, I actually, I actually have this here. It's like, you know, and it's really and it's really sweet, actually. The, like the description of the friends is really sweet. It's like there is Louis Louis Aragon departing. He only has time to wave to you. Philippe Suppot rises with the stars, and Paul Eloard, our mighty Eloard, has not yet returned, and so on and so on. Through all these names, all male names, and at the very end, it's then Jacques Baron and his brother, both of them handsome and cordial, and so many others too. And what ravishing women! <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. So I want to segue into my sense of what he's writing and why. Why is this 1924? I think he's writing about one facet of the industrialized middle class, the subjective experience of being part of the industrialized middle class is this life hackiness of everything, that everything has to be made useful and that you have to like optimize yourself in all of these various ways. He's talking about, it's almost like the negative space left by the industrialized middle class. The opposite of all of those values is living in a pure state of drugged surrealist dream state. I think it's interesting that those same ideas in the 1990s when it's, uh, the artist's way and writing down the bones and to some extent um, bird by bird, like these writing guides 
I think they had a very feminized version of that, but it was the same idea behind it, which is that you need to pull your brain out of certain training that, that oversaturates you and how you can be useful to others. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because the, this is, this is not the problem that most writing students have, unfortunately, um, or fortunately that, that they, they're too focused on being useful to others. But, um, well, I think that's the, those writing guides were specifically like for, you know, women with children, for people who are actually over trained into how they need to be useful to others. The, the ones in the 1990s. When you're writing something, when people are writing things, it almost never happens that you get a manuscript that is too concerned with the reader's experience of the manuscript and like is too comprehensible or too interesting. <laughs> like that doesn't really happen. You get stuff that you get a lot of stuff that's kind of completely garbled with, you know, like odd bits of lyricism here and there that don't really go with anything. You, you know what I'm saying, right? Yes, I do. I think that, that it's um, not writing at all is the thing that, um, that all of these authors were uh, pushing against. I actually think it, I, I think it actually may be quite similar thing because I think that the idea that um, art is only done by experts who have like certain training and utility to society, like that is what, you know, Dada and Surrealists, like they, they did not want that, right? They, they did not want the realist novel that's kind of useful in the following ways. Yeah, well, I would say like, the, I think that's, that's true. Like the stuff that's really fabulous about it is that utopianism, that idea that it's for everyone and that everyone can just can just relax their mind and produce these beautiful images, which is, I mean, it's interesting. Like I, I, I wonder, like, did they not ever encounter someone who couldn't do it? And did they think that that person was brainwashed? Like the, I, this is, this is where like, I feel like I need to have read about a year's worth of stuff to comment on some aspects of this. Cause I don't know the whole history of the surrealist movement. Um, yeah, I, as I went with this, I also regretted that I didn't have time to do more research and go deeper onto some of this, which was a surprise to me, because in general, I don't really like surrealist art. Yeah, that's, a, that's another thing about it. Like, I do like it. I like surrealist poetry for short stretches, but I do find that after, after a bit, um, it's not my thing. I'm not a person who can sink into Lautreamont or whatever you, you know what I'm saying like I think that's some of the things that really that alienate me about surrealist art it, it's kind of the opposite of what he thinks is going on I think that he wants pure meaning and not um to have the meanings of things come through it, I think he wants the meanings of things to, to be as little interrupted by culture as possible and when I encounter surrealist art that feels very heavy with other people's symbols, it feels like the mystery of not knowing what other people's symbols actually mean is the purpose. 
and that there there's not something different that you get from the different paintings. You only get the encounter of being excluded from the symbols. Yes. And I mean, one of the interesting things about it, he actually mentions that when he and Philippe Suppot first did automatic writing, one of the things that struck him immediately was how similar their writing was. And there's a thing about that, that surrealism tends to all feel pretty much the same. So it feels like an actual failure to escape from culture, that in fact, if you if you let your mind re- relax, all you get is culture. Yeah, all you get is the thing that you already did. Yeah, that everyone vaguely doing. Like the, you, the program that's running in your head actually isn't the program of your pure self. It's like it's the most kind of pre-digested stuff. But it just, yeah, it's like your cliches. You get the, these kind of odd just juxtapositions, but, but they all will kind of have the same flavor to them. And they even kind of have the same flavor, like 50 years later, there's a timeless quality to, to surrealist writings and surrealist produced writings, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's really that's really right. And that was partly why this was both difficult to read and also felt um, familiar. And like, even though it was difficult to read, I had a sense that I did understand, in fact, what he was saying. The art that I would compare to surrealism and say, where there's a sameness of my experience of surrealist art that is asking me to invest in the mystery of other people's symbols, the art that I, that I would contrast and say that the different paintings give me a strongly different reaction are portraits. I think most sort of portraits are probably the, the strongest of these, but um, art that depends on very careful attention to exactly what's there. The opposite of what he wants is to pay careful attention to what's there. And that's why he has that, that uh, passage from Crime and Punishment that he's sort of making fun of as being absurdly attentive to what's actually in the room. And then the novel that he puts as uh, superior to Crime and Punishment is um, Lewis's The Monk, which is bananas and <laughs> not something that we can put in this podcast because it's not from the 20th century, but otherwise I would. And the the aspects of that that he praises are how untethered from reality and time it actually is and that he calls that the marvelous yeah but at the same time i think if i read four different extreme monk nonsense novels i think that probably there would be a sameness to those also but i think there's also i mean he he is he's trying to get people to somehow get beyond all of the strictures of not only culture, but of ego, of subjectivity too. So there's somehow, and this is, I mean, it's such a common idea and an interesting and generative idea that, you know, it exists in Buddhism in some form. It certainly exists throughout like the history of 20th century literature, the idea that you should be able to dismantle even language to dismantle all of these forms of order, you know, the, the hostility to order of all kinds. And the idea that if you could just get, just get rid of all of the order and get rid of the ego and get rid of all of your attempts to put any form on things, then what you would be left with is 
truth. Uh, like there would be an epiphany, there would be some kind of revelation, which is ultimately just a, a kind of a negative theology idea. It's not, you know, it's, it's an eternal idea in human consciousness that if you could just get rid of all of the things that you're thinking and all of the ways you already see things, then you would be able to see the truth, the real, um, you would be, you would achieve nirvana of some kind. And so he's really, he's really just arriving at that by, by a particularly interesting means. Um, and, and I do think like part of it, like, because the focus is so much on art that a lot of it is just, it can, it can degenerate into feeling like he's just talking about his personal literary taste. Like he prefers like sentences like this, this summer, the roses are blue, the wood is of glass to Dostoevsky. Well, that's, you know, that's your taste and nobody can really argue with that, but it's not, it's not really, um, I I don't know. It's, I, I guess I'm, I'm, this is a separate point that I should have started from a different place actually. But I think that that argument, his while his, he's quite funny when he's making fun of Dostoevsky, and we all see what he means. I don't think it's going to convince anyone that they don't like Dostoevsky. Yeah, I I agree. I think that his hostility to storytelling is um, something that was a whole big thing in the 20th century. The hostility of the part of each art form that gives the most pleasure is um, something that you know I've written about in other forms about why that was an element, such a significant element in 20th century art. Um, so I, it's not that I think that people are actually going to turn against Dostoevsky because they read this, but I think that he is getting at something real um, about turning away from pleasurable parts of art because they also have this air of utility. Just in my own experience of being a person and trying to write things, I think when I have a to-do list and I am focused on completing the tasks on my to-do list and I get a feeling of satisfaction or pleasure from having done those things, it's like the the feeling of satisfaction or pleasure comes too cheaply and I can't think about anything bigger than the to-do list. I can't have an idea that I haven't thought of before or connect things together in a way that would surprise me at all, that I have to not have a to-do list even if I have the same number of tasks to do, I have to not get any satisfaction from doing them. And this is, you know, this is how I manage the thing he's talking about, which is an openness to being surprised by what your mind will give you and a refusal to get satisfaction from completing tasks correctly in a way that like what is correct has already been prescribed. Yeah. Although I would say that I think that he's actually not not taking into account that writing surrealist poetry can also be one of those tasks and you can become good at it and produce the surrealist poetry and get a pleasure from completing the task of writing the surrealist poetry or painting the surrealist painting. He's actually, like, at some points he's talking about artists painting like most of their paintings in some, in a state of kind of like outside of all kind of normal consciousness, but really, you know, in order to paint figurative paintings, and these are like figurative paintings, 
there, there has to be some kind of consciousness of like what you're doing while you're painting. Do you see what I mean? It's not. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I do. And I think that that's, that's part of his, at least I, I kind of connect that to his purposeful ignorance of the idea of work or being the person who does any work or does it well. Yeah. There's an element of charlatanry in it too, which, which may be, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't like I, it's sort of too easy to judge that kind of thing, but, and what do you expect from a manifesto? Of course, a manifesto is going to be subject to some forms of boosterism. It's not possible to write a manifesto while being self-deprecating. But, uh, uh, good point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's, he says that, you know, he's comparing surrealism to drugs and he says at one point that um, much like becoming a drug addict, you will enjoy surrealism so much that you will never be able to stop once you start. <laughs> you can't just have one lace potato chip. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think that that's overstating the case, let's just say yeah. <laughs> uh, about surrealism, but that he is describing something real that I think people do need to have in their lives if they're going to live good lives, whether they are artists or not, which is uh, an openness to subjectivity, a refusal to let everything become a life hack, even if it is not the only thing. And he's certainly saying that this should be the only thing. Yeah. And one, one of the few things that I really know about Breton biographically is that he was notorious for kind of throwing people out of the surrealists and policing who was a surrealist and who wasn't a surrealist and, you know, excommunicating people for, for crimes against literature and for being bad surrealists. Um, and now I can't remember how that relates to what you just said. Uh, <laughs> um, I think that it relates uh, because of the idea that it's a factor that should fit into people's lives rather than somebody's whole life. And that right. he's like, he's talking yeah. about being a person who basically just uh, experiences life like they're on acid all the time. But in fact, it sounds like not only was he doing work, he was doing maybe a little bit too much work uh, in policing the boundaries of his movement. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that there is the reading it. You can, you can definitely feel like the, the somewhat cartoonish charisma of the great art star who who is conscious of being an art star um, and who is conscious of having this whole entourage of people whom he names, you know, that that kind of tick of, of naming the people who are in favor with you, the arbiter of who is a good surrealist. Um, it's, it's so, it's such a part of, um, of having a, a kind of a school of literature or what is now called a writing community, when, you know, that which can t- take on a lot of different forms. Of course, a writing community can be something that's much more informal and collegial and not about this kind of, this sort of, you know, group promotion effort or group identity effort. But, but that's, that's something that people have done like through the ages of cre- is create a gang of artists put out a manifesto formally or informally and then like include people and promote each other as the great genius 
um, or then excommunicate each other. And in the case of the Surrealists, they would like write these diatribes against each other. So, so the, I, I keep, it's, it's sort of funny, like reading, reading the actual manifesto, I feel like it's, it's sort of infused with all of the social life that goes on behind a manifesto. Like a manifesto is never just the manifesto of one person. To be a manifesto, it's the manifesto of a group of people for whom this one person speaks. That's so interesting. That's a really good point. I thought that another thing that was sort of lurking behind it is the the combined presence of Freud and his uh, medical training, that he was a psychiatric doctor, training to be a psychiatric doctor uh, until World War One, and then um, his training was disrupted, but that he always had that, I guess, enthusiasm for Freud and the study of psychiatry and and the mind i guess in unuseful states mm-hmm. and i can imagine the firebrandy way he talks about freud happening in a room full of people who consider him an expert and that he's saying no this this guy freud he's really onto something that there are objects that have meanings they are the objects in dreams they're not the chairs and tables that we're sitting at, it's the the chairs and tables that you have a dream about that is not connected to memory, and but that that is only meaning. It's pure meaning, and this idea that he does actually have some training and expertise in that uh, seems like it's bubbling up through the the text. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's sort of, I guess, Freudianism is kind of the place where art and science and religion all kind of meet in this and like change places the entire time. And you can definitely see that in, in Breton who's, who's seemingly like so anti-science and so anti anything that, that would rely on the claims of science and the experimental method. But, but he's also kind of like posing as, as a person with a kind of scientific background and scientific expertise who can speak authoritatively about the mind. Yeah, that's, that's my feeling about it. And the, the way that he speaks about fairy tales also um, as sort of a, a vehicle of pure meaning, the opposite of realism that also seemed like successfully scientifically proven to be, the most direct source of human meaning is fairy tales that are not connected to a religion. There is an appeal to authority in there, even if it's not uh, overt. Yes. I also just wanted to say there's a new subject, but that it's an interesting thing that I found in this that was familiar from my whole experience of like living among writers and trying to be a writer and being taught writing well, mostly out of books, but is the cult of the beautiful image, which, which really like that is something that that came into literature and became the most important thing, and the idea That's of what is like that that these images should be like take a certain form, and you can see that there's an evolution of what an image is like from 
from the metaphysical poets with the conceit and the like the bizarre kind of cerebral images that they have in their poetry, which are difficult to even decipher. But then there, you know, their entire eras where images are really pretty workmanlike and kind of dry and you get to surrealism and it becomes this kind of valorization of a certain kind of image. Like he uses the word marvelous for, for what he really values in art. And there's a lot of like, it's, it's sort of interesting because he's not saying this, but a lot of this stuff is very kind of fantasy novel actually. Um, some of the some of the images that he talks about are like here's here's one that I really liked. In Rose Celavie's sleep, a dwarf risen from a well comes to eat her bread at night. And, then, and that's one of Duchamp's, right? Because Rose Celavie is Duchamp. That's his alter he, ego. He he says it's Robert Dino. I don't know. Hmm. Can you hear that phone? Should I? Yeah, should I? I'll just cut it out. If, I mean, I'll I'll trim out that part if if you. We, we can just chat until the phone goes away. Um, oh, that sounds great. Um, or I can just turn it off. If you want. I mean, either way, it doesn't matter. Um, I I actually appreciate a moment to think about what I was going to say in response. I don't know why it's taking so long for words to come to my mind. <clears throat> I'm just gonna. Hello. That was Howard. Hopefully he won't just call back. Um, okay. Anyway. Yeah. That like the, basically there's a lot of, there are a lot of, there's a lot of blood and fire and lions and eyes and dew and so on in these images. So you know, you they're know, interesting, but they're, they're also, they're also actually like they have this form, which, which, feels very old as well as feeling new. Yeah. I think that that like the, the cult of the beautiful sentences, um, which I think we've talked about as writers feeling, I guess a little dissatisfied with the idea of isolating sentences from fiction or even poetry and saying like, ah, so beautiful. And, you know, repeating that one line over and over, but he's kind of doing that quite a lot with his idea of the window that, what is it? It, it cuts a man in half he has that image that he sort of woke up with and then he has these words and I wish I had written them down, but he says them a lot of times in this way where he's like just treasuring the idea that he has this thing that came from outside of rationality and it has these aesthetic properties that are sort of beyond meaning. That also feels like a way of reading language that I guess would just seem very popular in the nineties. Yes. Yeah. And and is also I, I think as you said earlier by the by the nineties it's sort of feminized and for men you're you're supposed to write muscular taught I mean, muscular prose, prose. Uh-huh. yeah yeah exactly and so that sort of writing is either either written by women or it's part of magical realism which is exoticized. Um, or like the the 90s version of uh, like Instagram-y writing where you isolate sentences and write them on notebooks and tote bags and kind of aesthetic bookishness, kind of aestheticizing the process of what you're doing is a higher goal than, than the outcome being comprehensible. Yes, there's not really in this 
there's a lot of focus on the experiences of the writer um, and almost no interest in the experience of the reader. Or, yeah, hostility to the idea that a reader would have any claim on the writer. Yeah. Although, I mean, he does start, he starts by like, saying sort of um, stridently that that he finds Dostoevsky and all sort of literary realism and the novel boring. So that's that's a reader res- reader's response, if you like. But apart from Breton's response as a reader, we don't really get any any concern with readers. He does say that thing about Shakespeare where he allows that Shakespeare is occasionally a true surrealist because by virtue of being a genius, he occasionally reached surrealism, even though um, like he, he names a bunch of people from the past that he wants to include in his movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and Shakespeare is somewhat one of them because he thinks Shakespeare had his limitations, but occasionally reached a state of surrealism uh, I think that may be true. Oh, the, I think Shakespeare is occasionally surreal. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's sort of, um, I, I mean, it, it is, it's really interesting. Like the things that he's claiming, he's, he's kind of going, going through literature and culture and picking out things that, that he can, he can stick his name on or plant his flag in and, pull in to be part of surrealism and things that he will exclude. I guess I keep, I keep seeing it as almost as a political move on his part, even though I think we, we haven't actually given enough credit to the fact that, that although sometimes it, it's, it just doesn't make that much sense. A lot of the time, this is actually a beautiful piece of writing. Yeah. Beautiful and engaging yeah, uh, even when it's complicated, like the the part that had the heading, um, how not to be bored any longer with others. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I'll read that. Like, tell me, what are your what are your ideas about this? Like, I, there's something very charmingly humanly present about some of his some of how how he's talking about the problems of life. Yeah, he's he's really wonderfully interesting and you know and brilliant and all of that. Yeah, you can definitely see why people would want to listen to him or allow him to to be the one to write the manifesto of all of their collected thoughts. And that it actually is political because it's banned by the Nazis. So that he's not he's not wrong that this has political meaning in a way that I think was significantly less political by the time it was all popular in the 90s. Um, but it did have political meaning, and he also was a Marxist, right? Yes. He he actually ended up in Mexico writing something with Trotsky. So, yeah. So even though this piece seems pretty scornful and thoughtless about the idea of who is actually remembering what day of the week it is and bringing the writing implements to the writer – at least in theory, those are things that he's open to thinking about seriously. Yes. Although, I mean, it's really, it's really interesting. Like the, when he gets to talking about surrealist crimes, do you remember that towards the very end? Um, not as clearly as I think you do. 
<laughs> yeah, I've, that's because I cut and pasted the section that I want to talk about, and I'm just looking at it right now. Um, but he's talking about how in the future, because because the surrealist is just going to detach from his ego and his control over himself and just allow whatever comes to come, there there could in the future be people who write books that that are criminal, that commit libel and slander and indecency, but the person who has written it takes no responsibility for having written it, which I think is interesting, like in terms of our current political, political mores where, you know, we, we regard people as, I'm just, I'm just going to read this though, because I think it's clear what I mean. He's talking about somebody who's published a book, which has outraged public decency. Yeah. There are also many other charges against him, such as insulting and defaming the army, inciting to murder, rape, etc. The accused, moreover, hastens to agree with his accusers in stigmatizing most of the ideas expressed. His sole defense lies in claiming that he does not view himself as the author of the book, the said book being no more nor less than a surrealist concoction, which precludes any question of merit or lack of it on the part of the person who signs it. So, so the, it's this sort of interesting idea, and he's, he goes on to say that not only will there be surrealist works for which the author is not responsible, there will also be actual like, crimes in the world that people could commit under the influence of surrealism for which they wouldn't be responsible, which is sort of, which kind of like, I'm not sure what political persuasion that would fit under, although I think he, he ended up thinking of himself as an anarchist, which feels like the only possible word for it. Yeah, I think that that is, whether you call it surrealism or not, is obviously a major theme in the 20th century is the idea of people committing crimes that they are not actually responsible for. And the the point at which responsibility begins is something that was really embattled. Um, and this was obviously written before World War II when it became even more embattled but I think that, that idea was already something that was let's say psychologically really challenging after World War One, too like who actually did this yeah although like here here he seems to actually be implying that most people would be responsible for their crimes but a surrealist would not yeah I guess I'm looking at the meaning behind what he's saying, not the actual meaning of what he's right. saying. <laughs> not, not saying like, oh, uh, World War One yeah. was an act of surrealism, but that, that that idea was sort of leaping to mind if he was doing automatic writing, the idea of a horrific crime that everyone agrees is bad could still happen that no one is quite responsible for. Well, I sort of like the idea that, that where he may have gone wrong is in thinking that there are any states that aren't surrealist. Like perhaps we are all under the grip of surrealism at all times and everything that we do is the result of our not properly having a conscious mind and just producing behavior that that comes out of the air. Exactly like bats, yeah. <laughs> but we don't know that about bats. Bats could actually have free will. We don't know that.
was our episode on the Surrealist Manifesto from 1924. Thank you, as always, to Adam Bear for our music and to everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. As always, we love hearing from our listeners, so please write to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter or LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Goodbye till next week. 